Hello and welcome to another edition of We Ain't Got No Podcast. Jay Wilmington here, your host, and I'm joined once again by Julian Bravo, who I thank uh, for being such a regular around here. And man, do we have a fun match to talk about, Julian, after watching Tottenham and Chelsea play to a thrilling 2-2 draw. At times aggravating, at times uh, it just exciting um, and mesmerizing. And uh, man, we even almost got a little boxing match to end things there on the touchline. So, you know, Julian... Have you seen anything quite like this from a Spurs-Chelsea match? I mean, again, I think Battle of the Bridge and some of those, but this one, I think this one's going to be one we remember for a really long time. Yeah, and thank you for having me. And that's very much the case with this one is I don't think too many people expected this sort of game, especially from the onset. I mean, you think of Tuchel and Conte, and they're both two very passionate managers, but even then they seem to carry themselves both pretty well, especially in-game itself. So what we experienced today between that and everything in between, this was one to remember for quite a few years, actually. Yes, absolutely. And and I think, you know, right off the bat, you know, you saw both teams trying to really go at it. And and with the starting lineups, I was a little bit, um, you know, intrigued, I'll say, with what Chelsea did uh, starting... Starting the wingbacks that they did, putting in Kukurea and uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who came in at the right wingback spot, and that was just a little bit different, obviously. It was kind of nice to see. I thought we might see Kukurea. Um, obviously, Mendy in goal. Reese James, who I, you know at times complained a little bit about seeing in that right center back spot, I think in particular maybe when Aspilicueta's at the right wingback, but... He, it was he, man. He was a really interesting piece there, slotted in at right center back, along with Thiago Silva in the central role and, and Koulibaly over on left center back. And then again, the two man midfield of N'Golo Conte and Jorginho, and Mount Havertz and Sterling kind of taking up a front three. Although Mount moved around so much, it's almost hard to call him like a, a front three completely. Um, Spurs, on the other hand, kind of came out with what, we, what they've mostly seen for the season. Lloris in goal, Christian Romero, Eric Dyer, Ben Davis, Emerson Royale, all in the back line. And then uh, Bentenker, Hoiberg back, uh, in the midfield. And then, excuse me, Ryan Sessegnon also out at the wingback position. Uh, Kulisevsky, Son, and Harry Kane making up that front three. And, you know, I, I thought we'd maybe see Richarlison in the starting lineup, but really I think with the results that Spurs have gotten – uh, with that group kind of really not a big shock, especially coming into a big environment like Stamford Bridge. But, you know, Julian, what do you, what do you think when you saw that starting a lineup? Uh, I'm going to guess that particularly had to raise your eyebrows a little bit to see Loftus-Cheek in their right wing back in such a big affair when it's not, you know, when he was going to at least presumably have some defensive role to play. I think a lot of us looked at that starting 11 and didn't necessarily think we were going to come out with a back five or two wing backs anyway. I think a lot of us assumed that we were probably going for a three-man midfield and a back four because that's just the thing that logically makes the most sense for this team. But it goes to show that there are times Tuchel will surprise us with his lineup selection, and this was definitely the case. As Once we saw Loftus-Cheek out there, uh, chalk on the boots, the old school term they say, um, it was not what we were expecting by any means, but early on, it seems to work well. As far as Spurs go, I think one advantage for us is we have enough familiarity with Conte to know that he doesn't love rotating too often. I mean, there were times when he was our manager, we saw him play the exact same 11 for however many games straight. So I guess not too many surprises from their side of things, but when it came to our 11, 
definitely a little bit of a shocker. It seems like he really wants to make that front three of uh, Mount Havertzen Sterling work. So that's probably his selected choice for the time being. But the rest of the field, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. And I, I almost wonder even, you know, Tuchel probably thinking with that lineup having, you know, I'm not sure Spurs themselves knew exactly what they were going to see seeing that starting lineup because, you know, again, we've seen Loftus-Cheek be such a flexible player and do so many different things. And he has played at that right wing back spot. But yeah, I don't, I, to see him in a, in a big match like this, I almost think that, you know, we've seen him there at times when it's maybe a, a cup match or somebody that Chelsea's just expecting to be on the ball all the time. And yet, you know, I thought he really comported himself well and, and, and his ability to do the things that he does in midfield and does that kind of just with his athleticism and the things Loftus-Cheek does so well, they they were, they were really kind of jumped off the pitch from that position in this match. But, I'm you know, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more. But, uh, you know, really an impressive half, first half from Chelsea, incredibly so. But maybe not for the first five minutes and Chelsea just having a little bit of trouble kind of getting penned in their own half, you know, not able to, 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 you know, they were wanting to work through that press of Spurs uh, and and kind of at least for the first five minutes having a little trouble doing so. And, you know, I got a little bit nervous thinking, man, are we going to just play ourselves right into a big mistake here early and, and really put ourselves under big pressure. But, you know, it didn't take long for that to, for that to cool off and for Chelsea to find their footing. Yeah, it was interesting. I was not expecting this from Tottenham. And one thing I noticed very early on in the match was they weren't pressing Jorginho in the midfield. They were backing off. And we're always going to see the very best from Jorginho when he is not pressured and he has time on the ball. But that was the thing was everybody had a little bit more time on the ball than we're typically used to. We would get the ball in the midfield, which we typically like to go around and bypass that midfield altogether. But they were giving us so much space that we were able to just take the ball straight through and carve them up. We were seeing some incredible passing. I don't want to discredit Chelsea because Tottenham came out a little lackluster after those first five minutes. They didn't seem overly intent on attacking us, but rather just letting us have the possession and maybe catching us on the counter. But even then, we were seeing some wonderful passing that we don't always see from Chelsea. That's one thing oftentimes you can expect from this club is when they're playing the bigger clubs, especially when they're playing Tottenham as well, they seem to just show up for these matches. And that was pretty evident early on in this match. One of the things I thought Chelsea did really well in that first half and and throughout the match as well, but just stood out to me was, you know, we mentioned Reese James in that right center back spot. And it was pretty clear that they just were going to ma- essentially almost have him follow Son wherever he went anywhere on the pitch. And, you know, it was clearly a, a sign of respect. It reminded me a little of the way a lot of teams used to mark against Hazard when, when he was so effective at, at being the spark for Chelsea in, in years where you know, it's just like teams would follow him all over the pitch and just kick him until he, you know, could hardly stand up anymore. Wonder why he has bad ankles. But, you know, it was kind of like, it was so effective because with James, you know, athleticism, I think it surprised someone. I mean, especially thinking if I, you know, if I'm, if I just come deep or if I move into certain areas, I can create huge pockets of space where, you know, I should be and James is gone. But again, I think with that, that five man back line, so to speak, I thought Ruben, for the most part, did a good job kind of filling in for that and and just completely neutralizing any of that counterattack from Tottenham that usually is so scary. And and to your point, I also thought that I didn't think Tottenham did a great job of creating any 
of those counter chances through that press that did look a little scary early. Uh, you know, Chelsea, I thought, was effective at moving the ball quickly, and and to some degree, you know, like like you say, credit to them for deterring Spurs pressing. It's hard to press in in a in a really hot London day, especially when the ball's being moved around you know, quickly. Um, but I thought, yeah, I thought it started to almost kind of uh, to wear on Tottenham a little in that first half, to where then Chelsea didn't have to pass it around as quickly, but still still found it pretty easy. Um, you know, but kind of without, at least in the first close to 20 minutes, really creating, you know, not, or at least finishing just again, it was kind of that standout, like, man, the, the, the play itself has picked up so much from last week, but is, are we going to find that cutting edge? Um, you know, and then it finally did come and it came off a set piece and I was just starting to think, you know, our set pieces had, had been, we had so many corners against Everton and, and the majority of them were not only just just knocked out not not even close to creating anything and, and it's starting to look that way again and then finally ooh, what an impressive uh, volley from Koulibaly on a, a cross from Kukurea and uh, Julian man uh, you know what are we it's hard to ever see anyone hit a ball sweeter than that but particularly a center back uh, welcome welcome to the club Oh, John Terry-esque, I think, is the description we're looking for on that one. Yeah. Uh, again, I want to give massive credits because the finish on that, uh, I think the announcer said that that's something Drogba we'd be, would be jealous of. It was an incredible finish. There is, of course, the question of how he can leave any player that unmarked, and that was typical Spurs right there, as they completely just lost him. And as a result, he had a great opportunity on goal, and he did something that we don't always do well. He took his opportunity, and I have to say that goal was deserved. It was coming. We were on top for the duration of the match up to that point, so I felt like it was a justified and earned goal from everything we had done up to that point. And, you know, Tottenham almost hit back uh, as, as Hoiberg uh, gets on, get, plays a long ball over the top uh, to Sessegnon, and it, I thought, you know, they, they Spurs kind of tried, thought maybe they were going to, like, punch right back, but again, Chelsea was, was strong to just kind of re-control the match, and, and another guy that really stood out this time on the offensive end of the pitch, you know, was Mason Mount, who I thought was, had one of his, we talked about, had one of his poor matches for, for Chelsea in the last match against Everton, and I think, you know, knowing the type of player he is, I think most Chelsea fans expected him to have a bounce-back performance, and he did, but I think interestingly, from a tactical perspective, was that, you know, he... I thought Chelsea and Mount himself made use of the player that he is, the unique player that he is, and he he is so good at you know working into space. And instead of kind of waiting for the ball or trying to get it out in wide areas, he was able to really drop in the midfield. And unlike Chelsea, who really worked so hard to keep Son from getting you know receiving the ball regardless of where he was, Mount was able to pretty easily work into spaces all over the pitch get the ball turned and then kind of create, you know, a little one, two triangle type passing with particularly on that left side with Sterling and Kukurea. So, you know, I, you know, I, again, missed, missed a really good chance on the edge of the box, but what do you think about Mount's performance, particularly there in the first half? Well, this was better. And I think one of the things I said in preview for this match was you are going to get a much better performance from both Reese James and Mason Mount. You rarely see back-to-back performances from both of those players that were as poor as that Everton performance was. Mason Mount looked better, still maybe needs to find his shooting boots for the season, and that one should be put in the back of the net or at least on target, but much better. It seems like he's building a connection with the players around him, which will take time, of course. 
But once that's found, I think that we will have some much more potent attack from him as well as the rest of the players around us. Because he is, has mentioned, arguably, maybe our most important player on the team. So once he gets going, once he's informed, then I feel like the rest of the team will follow suit. Yeah, and talking about Reese James, just uh, in the still in the first half, late in the first half, he was booked after... You know, it, it was pretty. It was a completely tactical booking. Of course, was going to pick it up. He knew it, and it was a smart one to take. I think when Solon for the first time and off a pretty poor corner from Chelsea again, uh, you know, it is away, and it's kind of looks like it might be one of those kind of classic Tottenham counter attacks. And James, you know, comes over and and gets both arms around him, takes a yellow. But I, I partly put a marker in that. You know, it was by far the most blatant of many tactical fouls in this match, but. It was also just like instantly, okay, tactical foul, yellow card, we move on like we'd expect. And, you know, we saw many other times in this match coming up where there were foul after foul after foul that not even for accumulation did did we start to see cards. Um, But, you know, anything else from the first half, really? Again, I think Chelsea, it was kind of a classic tale of when Chelsea looks good, playing some really beautiful football, um, having tons of possession. But again, you know... Not really, obviously not having any finishing, but all, but also not really creating chances where you felt like, um, you know, I don't know if you saw the West Ham match where they hit the underside of the, the, the crossbar twice and, and didn't go in. Like, it wasn't like it, we were just coming millimeters away or anything. It was just kind of like really good uh, possession play and then nothing nothing in the final third. So I don't know, anything else from the first half that kind of, you know, you want to talk about? It reminded me of our last match against Conte with Tottenham, where it was very similar in the sense that they didn't come out with the intention of attacking us. And as a result, we controlled possession. And then I assumed we were going to see some adjustments from Conte going into the second half, but they came out flat again and let us dominate that second half. So I was thinking that maybe Conte was going to learn from his mistakes from the first time, and we were going to see a completely different Tottenham team to start that second half, which a little foreshadowing, not quite, not at the start anyway. Yeah, Chelsea, look, once again, I was exactly like you. I just thought, you know, knowing Conte, it'll be at a change or an adjustment right there at halftime. And, and you know, again, happy happy to have the lead, and I think we're in good position, but I don't expect kind of the same energy levels and just kind of the same dominance. But really, at least to start out, it, it mostly was. Um, and, you know, I think Chelsea, again, un, a little bit of their own doing, but just kind of victims there early of not being able to put a match away, you know, early in the second half. And you just sort of wonder if they're able to kind of constrict Tottenham and make one more chance. Do they avoid some of the chaotic back and forth which follows, but you know, who, who, we'll never know that. Um, but in the 61st minute, in particular, I think was the one that really stung because that's when Sterling, you know, had, had the ball in the box, and and after Loftus Cheek had a nice but semi awkward sort of stumble into the box, and he plays it off for Sterling. Sterling composed, beats a man, and he, I mean, was he five yards out? And just blazes over, um, you know, two defenders there. But it's just the kind of thing that's like, again, I know you've commented that, you know, Sterling not known to, you know, even though he scored a lot of goals, not a finisher, so to speak. A little hard to argue, at least on that attempt, didn't didn't look good for him. And it just, those are the ones where you just, it's it's not just the goal lost. It's the knowledge of like, man, that's the dagger and... There's this in this kind of rivalry. It just you almost feel it's inevitable if you don't kind of 
finish that off? What do you think? Well, the most important sub I saw was in that 56th minute when Richarlison came on because it may he didn't have the best game, honestly, but it changed the way that Tottenham were playing because his substitution took them from being a little bit too defensive-minded, trying to catch us on the counter, to a much more open game on both ends of the pitch. And the chance you're referencing is one of the most important parts of this game in general because if he puts that away, we're up 2-0, and I pretty sure Tottenham's not going to come back from that one because it just seemed like they were struggling to get a footing in the game and a second goal would have probably killed it off then and there. Yes, they fought hard and they were determined to come back, but I think two goals at that time might have been a little bit too much for them to handle. So both of those things really played a role. And by missing that opportunity, it left the game still open. So we were seeing a much more fair and even game at that time than we had seen up to that point. And I think there is something to even as just a competitive perspective of this, like if you're on the ropes and you know your opponent has a chance to finish you off and they don't, I, again, there's all, you're already maybe playing, um, you know, without a lot of pressure because you're behind and, you, you know, you're on the road, but it's just like, all right, like you, you missed your chance and you're going to ruin it. And I, as much as the home team feels a let off, I think it's just that extra motivation, and and I and rightly so about the Richarlison substitution that I you know they mentioned it in the broadcast, and I thought the same thing that he'd probably come on for Kulisevsky because they're not going to take off Son or Kane, and and he's you know what are they going to do? They took off a defender, and he completely changes the style of play. And yeah, did it open up Chelsea's you know opportunities, and and was a big part of you know where Reese James was just became a you know, just a menace down the right side. Sure, but Conte knew, you know, I've got I've got to do something different. We're not getting back in this match the way we're doing it. And like you said, Richarlison himself maybe not just didn't set the match on fire, but he really did his introduction make a big change in the dynamic of the game. And, you know, Chelsea I, I weren't, in my opinion, really able to do that in anything that they did um, with their substitutions. But, um they did get back in the game. Uh, uh, Hottenham did, and and again, only minutes after that, seven minutes after Sterling's uh, a miss from five yards, and it's Hoiberg. And I think we start this one really with the ball, you know, with with the foul, non-foul on on Havertz from Bentoncourt, where uh, it looked like Chelsea are going to have a break, and Bentoncourt has to kind of take a, a pretty, you know, a pretty clear foul. And again, I. I, he may have tipped that ball, and again, so I, I I'm not even gonna. This isn't my most frustrated moment of the match from a from a refereeing perspective. But the fact to me that Bentoncur just makes that challenge and just stands up and stands, and I don't know. It looked very clear to me the player himself was giving that up the same way James did when he pulled down Solon. Like, yep, yeah, that's on me. I got this. That's a foul I had to give, and it just immediately played up field, and then what happened was what you said you felt like might happen or or we said might happen early was Jorginho gets caught in the Chelsea box and rather than trying to you know just just get it clear does get caught on it and and Hoiberg you know finishes um (laughs) I didn't particularly think that that offside I didn't particularly think Richarlison should have been called for offsides from where he was but I know many do Uh, um man I am fascinated to get your thoughts on this whole passage of play in general and what where where what really got your blood pumping well, I'm sure I'll draw the ire of Chelsea supporters on this one, but 
If it was a foul, I think it probably was, regardless of whether it was or it wasn't, it was close. And it's really difficult for a ref to make that call from where he was making that call. But it wasn't as egregious or blatantly obvious as I think a lot of people like to say it was. It was, at the very least, close. So from that vantage point, you play until the whistle. And there was a significant passage of play between the time where that tackle, non-tackle was made, and they scored the goal. I have had some issues with Jorginho getting caught in possession, and I'm not going to say too many negative things about it because it happened to like Michael Essie, and it happens to some of our favorite players ever, and it happened in this case. It is important. He needs to clear the ball. We need to not put ourselves in that situation, especially when tensions are already kind of high and we're feeling somewhat uh, wronged from a missed call. So at that moment, it's a wonderful finish from Hoiberg as well. They didn't let up just because we let up and we cannot let up. That is a mentality thing. We have to continue playing. And at the end of the day, that one's more on us than it is on the ref, in my opinion, anyway, because we cannot just stop playing. We cannot give them this opportunity. And we made the mistake to let them back into this. That's my thoughts anyway. Well, I'm going to agree with you 100 percent, actually. You know, like I said, I, I think based on my reaction to Benton Kerr's reaction, I thought it was a foul. But as you said, it was not part of an immediate passage of play that turned into that goal. Um, it was more on us. And I also... Um, I'm going to give Jorginho not a pass. It did lead directly to the goal. But, you know, it, it's really easy to watch 90 minutes of, of Chelsea, or not even necessarily 90 minutes, but but especially early in that first half when Tottenham was clearly trying to press high up the pitch, and they had a little success very early. Chelsea continued to play through the press, and some of their most effective passages of play were quick balls played through that press, and I was I was highly impressed with their ability to work through it and 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 I think that we talked earlier how Tottenham kind of stopped trying to push as as hard on that press and I think it was partly because of the consistency and Jorginho was a big part of that again that doesn't you know take away like hey it's a crucial time of the match and it's late in the match and you can't give the ball away there but it to not be in context of a whole match of having to you know he's at that central of having to always move the ball through traffic um you know, and and again, the highlight here on, uh, you know, the foul again. I think goal number two, um, for me, we'll get to was was much more egregious. Again, I think, you know, we talk about it because it's all part of this discussion around sort of the, the how the match was officiated at large. But um, I'm sure we could, we are probably in the minority, both of us, of not feeling like that. You know, that that foul really it was it was it was pretty close and that also you know that was not an offsides that should have been called based on where the player was so um i don't know after that though did you think you know was this kind of like deflating enough for you that you felt like um we were just going to hold on to a draw or did did you feel like chelsea would regain their fire a little bit and kind of you know like like come right back at tottenham well, this is where we should plant some seeds for wondering what happened at the end of this match, because I am still lost as to what Conte might have done, because it was obvious that Thomas Tuchel was upset after that goal. And if it's because of the passage of play, Conte does not have any control over that. And I can't imagine that Tuchel would have been upset at Conte for whatever happened at that passage of play. So I would still like to know what it was at that moment that upset Tuchel as much as it did. And it could be that Conte was uh, celebrating excessively. And we know Conte. 
he was our manager. He's a very passionate guy. I always refer to the anecdote where I was in Ann Arbor, just his very first game managing Chelsea in a preseason, and he was barking orders up and down. He's a very passionate guy. And Mourinho complained about the same thing. So those seeds right there, whatever happened, that was the first thing that really caused this entire drama after the match. But going back to the other point, after that, there was a pretty quick substitution where he did take off Jorginho. And when we changed, I think a lot of people were highly critical of the tactics because Jorginho came off and Azpilicueta came on when a lot of people felt we needed legs, we needed some more players running. But this game of cat and mouse, these tactical adjustments, it worked well in this moment because for whatever reason, they didn't seem as intent on pursuing this match. We were the lot a lot more likely to score from that point going forward. And I don't know what it was about this tactical adjustment, but we seem to control the ball better and we seem to get better opportunities, which would happen to lead to our next goal, actually. Indeed. And and that was Reese James. And even right before his goal, he was it was you know, it, it was coming right after he almost created another goal for Havertz after he come, you know, bursts into space down the right side and, and plays in a a ball that we've seen Reese James play many times, just a beautiful curling ball in Havertz, whose name we haven't brought up at all today. And and I thought he was again a pretty effective part of all of the creative passing play up front, but again, if he's your, you know, forward, he wasn't really close to scoring uh, real often. And here it was just on a plate from James and the side-footed volley. Not an easy play by any means at full speed, but my goodness, you know, Reese was completely in no man's land. He started to come for the cross, realized he had no chance, backpedaled one step, and just was waiting to watch it go into his net. And Havertz hits it wide. I just, oof, that was another one. Not quite for me as as painful as the Sterling one just because it is a volley. But, you know, again, man, if Tuchel's, you know, I, I don't want us to go sign Obama Yang, but if, if Tuchel is trying to, he's pointing at those kinds of things to Todd Bowley saying, what do you want from us? I, I can lead the horse to water, but I can't make him drink. So fortunately, it took just a minute later for Chelsea to finally uh, quench their thirst. And that was Reese James just did it himself after again, Chelsea's high press creates problems for Tottenham and, and they create a turnover. And this time James has found just an, a lot of space on the right side. Sterling, I thought did a good job holding off the pass just long enough to keep the central defender from going all the way out to James and James hits it first time. But it, you know, it was almost like a, like a, he, he held off just long enough to commit Larice before just, smashing it into the center of the net and man classic Reese James in a big moment for Chelsea well this Raheem Sterling match I feel like is what I was expecting from Raheem Sterling when we signed him to the club Raheem Sterling does an amazing job of setting up opportunities and it should not be understated how good of a job he did to put it right on a platter for Reese James to score that goal and obviously we alluded to the miss earlier because he's not always the most clinical of finishers but you're absolutely right. The Havertz thing, I feel like, will play a significant role as well because that's another missed opportunity, our second golden missed opportunity. But again, we were just in control. We always looked the more likely team to score. And Reese James, cool as you would like, he put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, we've seen so many players miss from that close, uh, right at the goalkeeper, maybe just past the post. But uh, Reese James, clinical. And everything that he did up to that point, he was are most likely to either create or score himself. So Reese James, he brought one back for us. 
And if you planted the original seed of the Conte Tuchel feud for this match, we'll water it a little bit here. As as I think you know, like you said, clearly Tuchel had been had been pretty annoyed, and and he receives another warning uh, from the fourth official as he just sprints right past the Spurs bench all the way down the touchline after Chelsea take the lead. And you know, you could tell that was a little bit. Again, I love it, but it was just a little bit of a. You know, it was it was there was a little intent there for sure. Spurs then come with a double change, taking off Benton Kerr and Son, bringing on Perisic and Basuma, and now, like you said, kind of the cat and mouse game continues. Tottenham now forced to particularly make changes, looking at you know making a pretty aggressive. Uh, you know, only with ten minutes left in the match, they had to do something pretty quickly. Um, and then just three minutes later, bringing on uh, Lucas Mora for Emerson Royal. So going, you know, pr- pretty darn attacking. Um, and then, you know, I, I'll let I'll leave it here before we get to the final moments of the match. A moment that really we've yet to see the impact completely of, and that's N'Golo Conte coming straight off the pitch with an injury, and it sounds like to ham to a hamstring, and and Connor Gallagher coming on for him. And again, this is this is. A little bit, um, and and this is I don't even I don't want to say this in any way that sounds remotely critical. It's just that this is a little bit of the N'Golo Conte the last few seasons experience in a nutshell. Uh, a nine out of ten performance all match long. He had just been a huge part of of creating the turnover and the pass to Sterling, who led to the goal to James, and now he's injured and may be out for we'll see. Hopefully not long, but uh, you know Julian thoughts there for Conte having to come out here with minutes left in the match, but also what that means going forward. This was so confusing as to why I'm still having issues with what we're doing in the transfer market. It's pretty obvious this is the position we need to fill the most because Kovacic was injured going into this match. So we were only ever going to play Conte and Jorginho in that midfield. There was no question who we were going to play there. And with Conte out, we have even less. We have one player to fill two spots, and that's not ideal. And Listening to Tuchel earlier this week kind of allude to the fact that he sees Connor Gallagher in that position. Connor Gallagher is not a central midfielder. He is not a defensive midfielder. He needs to play a little bit more forward on the pitch. And you were seeing it from him today that when he was pressing high, he was creating some great opportunities for us. He was poaching the ball and playing it into some dangerous positions. So this isn't ideal. This is really bad. And I don't know the severity of how long Kovacic might be gone. But losing Conte is, well, it's expected. And I kind of hate to say it that way. But when that Everton match finished, I said, we can't waste matches like this from Conte because we will either get to these matches or we won't get anything from Conte at all. He'll be on the sidelines. He'll be injured. And it's concerning. And this will probably keep him out for a little while, too. And we have, if Kovacic is fit, two players to play two positions and a bunch of players that don't fit in those positions. So something needs to be done, whether it's a signing, whether it's an adjustment in our play style formation, we, we can't play like this. Yeah, I really agree with you, but, and, and what's a little bit baffling to me as well is based on the comments from the manager that it doesn't, it, you know, when he describes the number of positions available in midfield and the options that he has, he describes it as an abundance of options. And, um, you know, you and I don't see it that way because I think a lot of those options, so to speak, are uh, square pegs and round holes. So um, I, they're only options. And so that 
sure, you can play them there, but I don't. I, I, they're certainly not equivalents uh, in my mind. Um, again, I really, really like Connor Gallagher, the player, but I think it does him a disservice uh, and, and the team as well to to be trying to put him in a two man midfield with Jorginho and expecting him to serve the role that Conte did today because that's not the player that Connor Gallagher is. Um, you know, I don't. I don't even love the the two-man midfield idea with Jorginho and Conte. I think at times, again, it's very effective. I, I am completely happy with it, and I also recognize that where we're at now, we need to play it, um, spe- you know, at least the majority of the time because when we have tried other systems, not other systems, I think we're tactically flexible more so than people like to admit, but I think when we really especially try to go to a back forward, go into three-man midfield, we've looked a little naive there and just, Again, maybe that's because you know it's it's not what our what our what Tuchel does does the best. But I anyway, we'll get back to the match. But you know, we can talk a little bit after if you like about that because I think that's going to be a really interesting focus for the club the club going forward and how Chelsea looks in the coming you know month or two. And and even when Conte comes back, I, it's still a concern because it's not like it's a guarantee he'll he'll be around for the entire rest of the season. But uh, um, Chelsea kind of continuing to have a, a chance here and there, but Pulisic comes on for Raheem Sterling to try to get some fresh legs on, and and you know Sterling really he'd done a lot. He'd he'd worked really hard all match, um, and really you know Julian, what what else do you want to kind of talk about until the final real moments of the game? Of course, you know really setting up the the match for Tottenham. Well, we didn't really create too much after that second goal, and this was an opportunity for us to maybe kill off the game. We saw perhaps the first lull in this game where neither team really looked overly threatening. It looked like a pretty neutral game, and it seemed like maybe we were content to just kind of leave it this way and defend a little bit, but I think one of the biggest issues we've had over the years, not just since Tuchel's time, but even before that, is killing off the game pursuing the game, like the way Manchester City and Liverpool do at times, we don't seem to have that in us, especially with matches like this, where it's there for the taking. And rather than going for it, we seemed more content on sitting back. So that was another sign of things to come, I suppose. Yeah, and I thought we actually, it was interesting to me that I didn't really like it, but that I thought against Everton, just kind of the way Chelsea broke up play in the second half and just it did seem like a team that was really trying to just kill a football game and deflate it um I was it was I I guess like you said I think I didn't expect it to work largely because we it hasn't been a strength of ours over the years and you know it was almost after happening like well man it would be refreshing to be a team that could actually do that but yeah I I don't think it's something that's been our strength and and with you know, uh, but it's going to almost have to be. We're going to either it's going to have to either become our strength, or we're going to have to be more clinical finishing, or we're not going to have the results we're looking for. I mean, it's almost like one of those three things has to be true, doesn't it? So, it comes down to again in extra time, as it so often does in the Premier League, and especially in big matches. And here's where we'll get into the kind of for me anyway, the part of of the Anthony Taylor, and not just him, but I think it was Mike Dean in the VAR booth, where where I. I, I, it's not even like just frustration or that I'm trying to say there's some conspiracy, but, but genuinely like, I don't, I don't under, I'm confused. And that's, you know, Kukurea gets pulled down on a corner four minutes into extra time by his hair. Uh, Romero just, just 
and and the angle for for the lead official Anthony Taylor on it is direct. There, he's not screened, and it, it's right there in front of him. E- even so, okay, like it's a it's a big moment. Maybe it's not. He's got his eyes on two players right right to the side there. There's no suggestion of a look anywhere from this, and and there is. It's immediately brought to the attention. This happened to the officials, and and again, nothing. And of course, without that. We go right back to another Tottenham corner. Should have clearly been a, a foul, and Chelsea clears the ball down the field, and the match is over. Instead, Tottenham receive another corner, and Harry Kane, like he so often has, comes up big man in the big moment. And you know, I've got to give him a little bit of stick here because he said after the match, it's always nice to score a last minute winner. Well, I, I, it, it is kind of how it seems like Spurs felt about this match. To you know, and, and to be fair to them. Um, you know, a draw at Stanford Bridge is a big moment, but to know that you know it, it did feel like a lot bigger moment for Spurs to get a point than it did for Chelsea. Um, yeah, you know, again, a lot there, Julian. But but you know, did did you feel largely differently about this uh, Anthony Taylor kind of conversation that's going around than than the original first goal? All right, and here comes my much more controversial take than even my first uh, forgiveness of Anthony Taylor is, if you remember in the infamous Battle of the Bridge, Mark Clattenburg himself said he wasn't going to give Tottenham an excuse. So even though he let the game get out of hand, he let it self-destruct. And I think a lot of the time, referees don't want to be seen as the referee for sending somebody off, or they don't want to be seen as the person that made a really bad call in the wrong way. Even at times, it means that they forget or miss a call in general. The thing I don't necessarily understand is why basically it just wasn't. I I can understand if it's not a red card. Truth be told, we rarely see this happen in the Premier League. Usually there aren't players with hair as long as Kukurea, and we rarely see somebody actually yank someone down from his hair. So to the best of my knowledge and memory, I can't recall ever having seen someone get sent off for something like that. And I'm sure in the book it says that he should be. And at the very, very least, he should have called and seen that there was a foul and called off the corner and we should have got a goal kick or a free kick actually at the spot. So that's at the very least. So I understand that part. However, what was our defending on that corner? That's the thing we have to point at ourselves. We have to look in the mirror and say, what happened? Maybe the players were upset about the non-call. Maybe they had just lost focus for a moment, but nobody was around Harry Kane. And I don't know whose job it was to pick him up. It seemed like maybe Koulibaly or maybe it was uh, Thiago Silva who missed the first. He was the first defender up front. But Harry Kane was left completely unmarked, and that's on us. Mendy didn't come out. I don't know if this was zonal marking or what on earth we were doing, but that was bad. From top to bottom on our end, we can't let a player, especially a player like Harry Kane, have an opportunity like that. So we can blame Anthony Taylor as much as we want, but we still have to look in the mirror. For the first time when we let that goal happen with Jorginho not clearing the ball, for us not playing to the whistle, and for the second time, us not staying focused and marking up, it's our faults. We didn't take our chances either. Also our faults. We cannot let, we cannot give the ref the opportunity to cost us a game. We have to either take the games into our own hand and finish them ourselves or remain focused throughout. But he made the wrong call. This one's obvious, but we still needed to finish this game. 
Yeah, and as you know, I think you and I at times often have, you know, one of the things I like is that we're not afraid to share our, our, our differing opinions about a lot of the same things that we watch. But I, in this case, I, I, I almost wish I could have more of a, a controversial or, or kind of like push back on you. But, but I think that's all really fair. I think that as frustrating as officiating is, let me, let me be real clear here. I, I you know, if I'm, a, if I'm a Spurs fan, God forbid, I, I am loving it even more that it happened the way it did. And I am not sitting here thinking that, you know, uh, look, that this hasn't happened on our end and our behalf in prior matches against Spurs or other teams, that this isn't just kind of, you know, swings and roundabouts in some ways. Now, the Anthony Taylor piece, I think, is a little bit different. I think that individual here adds a a little bit. It, it kind of makes this murkier than just sort of like football. But, but you know, again, I think I used to talk about with some folks that like the only thing sweeter than just pounding beating or, or coming back on or whatever it is with your rival is when they're, when they feel like they got absolutely screwed because look, man, there's nothing you can do about it. And so all that, you know, sort of salt is just sort of extra flavor for the opposing fans. So I, I'm not sitting here trying to say, you know, that we're individually, there's some conspiracy or, or these things, it, but it's yeah, it's frustrating. And while I recognize that you know Chelsea's many times gotten these kind of advantages over the years, there's also merit to having a discussion about the incident itself. And and here, that's where you know that's where I say like yeah, it doesn't really. I I don't understand what the point of VAR is like if we're not kind of looking at some of the stuff here. In fact, you know I, I we'll have this conversation another time. But like I'm not sure I wouldn't just be okay with just scrapping it it's like if we're going to get the decisions wrong anyway at, at times let's just not stop and interrupt play so we can celebrate goals again and not wait nine minutes to know if every single goal's off sides too so anyway uh, but this it seemed like that was kind of it right Tottenham scores the the tire the the with you know scores the tying goal in in sixth minute of extra time and that's going to be pretty much it but then one of the most contentious ma- uh, moments of the match happens after the final whistle. And uh, after we've gotten kind of a better look at after all the chaos, um, both red cards handed out for both managers. I guess the best I can make of it, Julian, is clearly lots of emotions from some of the incidents we, we saw earlier. But, you know, again, the way I saw it is that T- Tuchel had a little extra. He, he, had, he still had a burr completely in his side from something about Conte, whether it was pre-match, whether it was from years ago, whether it was from his behavior in this match. But when you saw him kind of, Conte starts to turn to leave after that handshake and, and Tuchel was like, uh-uh, man, we got, we're, we're, this is going to last a while. Um, I, I don't know. I, there's been so much said about it. I've listened to both the manager's comments. What, you know, how did you kind of feel about this, exchange I guess in the moment and now kind of looking back on it like and hearing some more context for it what are your thoughts now well they're both such graceful statesmen when they speak in interviews they come off as very charismatic and well politically correct oftentimes so it was really surprising to see this from both of them fortunate for us as Chelsea supporters we know both of these managers exceptionally well and I think individually, you wouldn't expect it from these managers. Somebody like Jose Mourinho, okay, yes, that's going to happen. But these two guys, it just didn't necessarily seem like it was something in the cards. 
And I still don't necessarily know what was the catalyst at the very start that led up to this, because I can see Conte maybe being a little grieved by Tuchel's celebration, but what was it that really upset Tuchel to the extent that he felt so strongly about Conte's antics throughout this match? And if I ever find out that answer, then we can maybe determine if Tuchel was overreacting or if Conte was a little too boastful at some point during this match. But neither of themselves, neither covered themselves in glory. Let's be real. Neither manager carried the best impression of the club after the match. And yeah, they're both passionate. And I think a lot of people will give Tuchel credit for standing up for his beliefs and his club. But it's not ideal to lose your manager for a match, regardless of the length of the match or what the situation is. That's just kind of the way I can leave that one. I don't. I don't want to get too existential here, but I. I there's there's like a beauty of humanity in this here for me because even as a coach, I think about this is exactly the kind of thing that you coach over and over and over. And your players just, you always want to set the example and talk about things. Don't have this kind of behavior. It's not professional. It's not class. It's not It's not the way we comport ourselves. And and, and the idea of players kind of being petulant like this is kind of, you know, we nobody likes to see it, and especially as a manager. But, again, it's so easy for me to connect with the humanality of that just intense raw emotion and almost like insert, you know, like injecting a dose of being a Chelsea fan into Thomas Tuchel in that moment. Like if I could be on that pitch and I could scream at Spurs and I, again, like, is it, is it professional? Is, is it petulant? Like it is. And I admit that. And is it the best look? No, but I, the other side of me is just like, yeah, and I love it. And I feel that way, honestly, about both managers. I, I do like you. I still think if I had to just like arbitrarily, I'm like, I'm I'm not quite sure what Tuchel's main frustration was. He like I said, I he seemed to have a little bit more of the issue, and yet I I didn't I I didn't see anything on the day that really sparked that, other than just it was this really emotional match, and he was incredibly frustrated. And to me, it seemed like his frustration, right or wrong, about the feeling about a couple of those calls that he was so frustrated about. I think Antonio Conte was sort of the outlet that he got to vent to in a way about it. And, and probably because he wasn't his favorite dude on the earth either. So, uh, you know, anyway, I, I've, I, I know that's kind of like really out there, but it's, it just to me, like all of the human emotion in one of understanding, like, yeah, I, I, it wasn't maybe the best, but I also respect it, kind of love it. And like you mentioned Mourinho, it kind of was why I think people are so endeared to him, even though his personality is so crusty, is is kind of because of that, you know, passion with the SH. Yeah, and I can see your point of view on this sort of thing, but I, I just want to get past it. I assume the next time they see each other, they will be a lot more cordial. I assume that maybe if we don't have as controversial of a match, we never see this. That's the other side of it is, if we don't have a match so contentious, one that doesn't end in a last-minute equalizer, then we're not seeing this sort of reaction from either manager. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think you're right, and, and I think going forward, it's just one of those things. You've already seen both managers kind of try to say the right things. I mean, both, again, I think the FA today sort of, you know, definitely going to throw down the hammer, and and it could be more so even on Tuchel, I don't know, but um, that's just what the FA does, so... I, uh, I, I, but from the comments from the managers already kind of trying to 
you know, put distance behind this rather than flare it up further. So I think I think you're exactly right there. So um, what about this? What about a man of the match for you? Because I think it's, man, it, it was like a marathon emotionally and also a match that played out in different acts. So, you know, what? who what, who was the man of the match for Chelsea? I feel like this one has to be Reese James for a number of reasons. First, of course, being his marking of Son. That's important. Son's their best player. You could argue Kane, but I think Son's probably the best player. Between that, the goal he scored, and there were some of those plays, like the one right on Havertz's foot. I mean, you cannot deliver a ball better than that. So he created for us, he scored for us, and he defended for us. He did more than you need from a right back. Uh, wonderful performance from him, a back performance, if you had considered the Everton performance to be one of his less impressive ones over the years. But Reese James continuing to show why he is not just one of our best players, but also one of our most important players. Yeah, make that two votes for me. I think uh, N'Golo Kante had a really, really impressive match. But I think, you know, again, what Reese played all uh, all 90 minutes and and also scored a goal. Um, and I think, you know, Kulabali scored a goal, scored a goal and, and, and was a strong member of the back line. But again, um, I think Reese James is got to be the guy uh, that, that gets my man of the match vote as well. Um, you know, doing and what else? Kind of going into to this Leeds match, which apparently we're not going to have, uh, you know, I, Thomas Tuchel, it's an interesting conversation alone. Can Is he effectively still going to manage because with technology these days, he can, you know, he, he can pretty much just be in the ear of, of the, on the touchline and, and effectively manage the match from, from the side, you know, somewhere else. Um, but, you know, We've got N'Golo Conte's injury to think about. Um, we're, we've got two weeks left in this transfer deadline. Um, you know, it sounds like probably a good time to have a midweek pod or something like that. But but what, what else kind of stands out to you following this match and where Chelsea stands after taking the point and moving forward? Well, we knew these first three fixtures were going to be interesting because we didn't exactly know what to expect. And I think one thing we didn't expect was that Leeds was going to be ahead of us in the table as they're one spot ahead of us. They have a win and a draw, so they're performing above expectations to start the season. And I wasn't necessarily sure if we would have four points going into that Leeds match, but I was going to happily take four points from a tricky away fixture to Everton and then another tricky home fixture to Tottenham. And some people might be upset we don't have full points given we were just a couple of minutes from having those. But I will take the four points given how tricky the waters were from the start of the season. And we still should be significant favorites over Leeds who are still a relegation contender, even if they have got off to a better than expected start. We're going to be in a tricky situation from this point going forward. I really hope this expedites the process of getting a midfielder because that is still, it was our most important position to fill before this match. And after losing Conte, it is now double importance. And we really need to figure out a way to sort that out because I don't like any of our options there if Kovacic is still out injured. We have Loftus-Cheek, we have Gallagher, not, not ideal to play in that position. Yeah, it's all, you know, I, I, again, I'm with you and it, it's again, something to me that just stands out that, you know, with two weeks left in the window, that would be an area to address. But as we sit here now, um, you know, and they're talking about looking at Anthony Gordon, they're talking about looking at, uh, Obama Yang, which I think is going to kind of die down now based on a cost. But, um, you know, it does seem to me like Tuchel is still going to push pretty hard to get some kind of forward and, um, 
I, you know, the Wesley Fafana, there's a lot of smoke there right now, and I think that's probably going to happen in the next, or at least before the window closes. So I think with if we're looking at a world record fee there, then I, I think that probably if he's going to get an attacker in after all the money spent, it's going to have to be a, you know, um, I told you I didn't think it would be Zaha, but I think one of the reasons that name even comes up is because the cost at his age wouldn't be super exorbitant. Uh, but again, I, 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 we'll, we'll have another conversation there. But I, I'm, I'm still curious to see what Chelsea does with two weeks left and 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 what they do. But I, I was this this match even as frustrating as it was with with some of those all the things we talked about here in this podcast. And to not take full points, yeah, you've got to take one step back and say, look, four points after these two matches, particularly knowing, um, you know, Tottenham came in looking, looking, looking strong, and uh, you know, the the Everton, you know, Goodison Park being such a bogey ground, to have four points after these two matches, and particularly the way that Chelsea, again, okay, the the lack of finishing still an issue, but. Man, was I encouraged, like most Chelsea fans, by their play today against a much more difficult team than than we saw against Everton. So, I think that's kind of the glass half full thing for me. And uh, I think you know, I, I I'm still nervous about a number of things, and Conte's injury certainly adds to that. But that's just me, man. I'm a nervous guy, so there's always going to be a few things like that. And 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 I feel about as good as I could have expected to after two matches and going into Leeds. So. That's about all for my thoughts. Julian, anything you'd like to add before we close up shop? Yes, and I really hope people take this seriously. Let it go. Let this match go. Do not be here again in January or February harping on the calls in this match. The motto for the club is carefree. We're supposed to be carefree. These mistakes happen. We've been wronged so much worse in the past. I think people are quick to forget Howard Webb, Tom Henning of Rabo. We have had some calls and some matches that have cost us far more than two points so i really implore people to not get worked up not uh, draw all these conspiracy theories out because at the end of the day this doesn't change anything we need to be a better version of ourselves from this point going forward and we need to not allow ourselves to be in this opportunity in this situation going forward so just Try to try to relax, people, and focus on the next match and leave this one in the past. We don't ever need to think about this match ever again. And uh, next time Anthony Taylor's uh, ref for one of our matches, you know, keep keep optimistic uh, uh, caution right there. Maybe this time won't be as bad as the last because he's due for an okay performance at the very least at some point. Well said, my friend. Carefree, Chelsea fans. We're carefree, and that's how we're going into next week at Leeds. So until then, we'll uh, catch up with you the next time. Julian, thanks again for joining me, and we'll uh, see you guys on the other side. Uh, It's Jay Wilmington here on We Ain't Got No Podcast. See you next time, folks.